0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing, taking place on Saturday, June 18th at Nettle Meadow Farm. For more information, visit nettlemeadowcheeseandspirits.com. That's N-E-T-T-L-E, meadowcheeseandspirits.com.
2: This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
3: Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes if you listen regularly, or even if you only listen once, I guess. <laughs> and please reach out if you have any questions. You can always reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and follow me on social media at thefoodballer. Today I'm in the studio with Sarah Wiener, uh, who is a good friend of mine and the co-founder of Seedling Projects, which is a nonprofit based in San Francisco that is responsible for the Good Food Awards and the Good Food Merchants Guild. Welcome, Sarah, to the studio.
2: Thank you. I'm psyched to be here.
3: Um, this is a pre-recorded show, not like we have a call-in aspect to the show, but I, for some reason, feel like I should say that to the listeners. That uh, So we are recording this on, today's May 4th, uh, 2016, but you will hear it. Sometime later in the future, uh, Sarah. Um, I usually start out by um, asking people how they describe what they do. Um, hmm. Like, so when you meet somebody, if you're, you know, like you just flew in from Chicago and sitting next to someone on the plane, um, when they make chit chat and say, "What do you do? How do you describe what you do?"
2: Um, that's a very simple question that um, is very hard to answer. Um, let's see. Well. I have the privilege of being able to work with amazing food producers and bring them together um, with each other and with um, other people who believe in what they do and can help support them. And we do that mainly through um, big events and gatherings like the Good Food Awards, um, where we have about a thousand amazing food producers and people who love food that all come together to recognize them um, and other things throughout the year
3: how uh, since you talk about the good food awards, how do you describe that to people i mean as as someone who has been involved in both the blind tasting and the presentation of those awards, um, I know what I say, but mm-hmm. how do you describe that to people because you know the good food awards while I think to Certain people, uh, potentially in my position as a retailer of a lot of these products, or potentially to the makers of these products, the Good Food Awards is sort of like the Oscars of the um, sort of small batch sustainable food movement, I uh-huh. guess you could describe it. Um, but most people still. You know, don't really know what the Good Food Awards is. Maybe in mm-hmm. 15, 20 years, hopefully, maybe it'll be televised. Maybe, you know, bars will be have people with betting pools related to the Good Food Awards. I mean, mm-hmm. we can only hope, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, I love how you describe it as the Oscars. Um, often what I will say is it's similar to the James Beard Awards and um, that we're trying to bring someone out from behind a curtain. Um, Whereas, you know, maybe 30 years ago, the the general public didn't know, um, you know, 10 chefs off the top of their head. um, And allow them to have a platform where they can talk about what matters to them. They can support the farmers that they work with. Um, And we're trying to bring that same power that... um, the public loves to know what's the best of the best, sort of bring that cachet to a whole new world of amazing people who are just working so hard kind of in their kitchens, in their basements, um, making fabulous food. Um, and the one catch is where the James Beard Awards, it's just about like what comes on the plate. And that's how you're judged for the Good Food Awards. It's what's on your plate, but also to even be able to enter you need to meet certain sustainability and social responsibility criteria
3: and what uh, is there a succinct way to describe what those are they differ a little bit by category right I guess I should take mm-hmm. a step back and describe what the good foods good mm-hmm. what the good food awards actually are and represent right mm-hmm. so the good food Awards is an award that takes place every year in January in San Francisco to award uh, the top makers of food in a number of different categories. Um, I probably can't list them off the top of my head. I don't know if you can. Um, I know that we have cheese and chocolate and beer and cider and coffee, charcuterie, pantry, preserves. What am I missing?
2: Spirits.
3: Spirits, right. I've never judged that one.
2: It's a big favorite. (laughs) Um, Confections.
3: Confections, right.
2: Um, Pickles.
3: Right. Oh right, pickles and preserves pickles got and preserves. separated at some point, right?
2: Yep. Uh, we've covered most. Uh, honey.
3: Oh, honey, right? Honey.
2: Um, we're up to going to be up to fourteen this year. We started with seven, and each year add one more.
3: Do you have a goal in mind where you'd like to get to as a top, as a as a limit? Mm-hmm. You know, I know that there was there were discussions among groups of retailers this year about what. Could potentially be new ones, so some that aren't Mm -hmm. part of the awards yet are snacks. We discussed. Mm -hmm. We discussed ice cream as one, which presents a lot of logistical issues related, certainly, to the blind tasting, if not even, Mm -hmm. uh, if not the distribution. So the way the awards are. Uh, selected or the award winners are selected is that there is a huge blind tasting that Sarah and her team at Seedling and a lot of volunteers put together uh, in the fall, and that usually happens in in September. And a bunch, I mean, a bunch. How many how many judges are there? Hundred and seventy? Uh, like over
2: two hundred? Over two hundred
3: now? Wow! So over two hundred of us get together and spend a marathon day tasting. And every time I describe it to someone when I'm going there, they say, oh, you're so lucky. That sounds so amazing. And it is amazing, certainly. And it's something that I feel, you know, I feel very... Proud to be able to be a part of it, and, and that you know that my my taste buds matter, and my thoughts on on food and its production matter in in that realm. But I will also tell everybody who thinks of, you know who just heard what I described that you're tasting all this the best cheese, the best charcuterie, the best honey, the best coffee, the best spirits. It is really really hard.
2: Mm-hmm. I actually don't envy you. <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh right you don't judge you you're just managing all of us on that on that day right
2: That's right I just get to run around and um See everyone. But you must
3: taste a little bit. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. you must go to each. I mean, so that's, you know, I, I tasted pantry last year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember, you know, in the break sneaking over to, say, the spirits folks and the beer folks and say, which ones are really good? Yes. So you kind of get to, them to do the work. And then you tell them, you know, then you get to reap the benefit of being like, oh, I'll just taste the best.
2: Exactly. You get to be kind of tipped off.
3: Yeah. yeah. So over 200 people judge the f- products. And it is it is a blind tasting. Um, I will say, of course, for many of us in the industry, sometimes you come across a product that you know really well, Mm -hmm. and so you do actually know who makes it. Um, But for the most part, it's a blind, completely blind tasting, and you're judging based on on flavor on um, marketability on usability um but not on packaging i want to make that that Mm -hmm. is actually an important distinction um, and one that for retailers does become sometimes an issue where you might taste something that is super awesome and you just look at it and you're like i just can't the packaging doesn't work for me Mm -hmm. and my in my market people might buy it if they tasted it Mm -hmm. but the packaging is going to be a barrier to
0: Mm -hmm. that
3: Um, and then those winners are all sort of collated together by the team at seedling and winners are chosen from from
2: that pool Yes, and um, the interesting thing that happens sort of behind the curtain is um, we'll have all the top-tasting products kind of in one big list um, based on what the judges said, but then we'll actually end up doing two or three hundred phone calls um, to producers and working with them very closely to see really where are they sourcing those onions from or um, kind of what's the traceability of their base alcohol um, or the grains that went into the alcohol. Um, And that takes three or four kind of full-time people, a full month um, to connect with all of them.
3: Can you speak a little bit about, even though the criteria may be different for Mm -hmm. specific categories, uh, in in a sort of more general way of what are, what are the things, what are those questions like? What are the things you're looking for in terms of an answer? And what are the things that would prevent someone. So let's say a product in the pantry section last year that I tasted that all, you know, 17 of us or 20 of us who were tasting that category decided this is a winning level product based mm-hmm. on taste.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And then you make the phone calls, what is something that would prevent that product from mm-hmm. actually being granted? a winning status?
2: Well, one thing across the board, across every single category, is um, no genetically modified um, organisms and the ingredients. Um, So it sneaks up in kind of sneaky ways. So for preserves, for example, um, if a preserve has beet sugar, rather than cane sugar, and that beet sugar is not either certified organic or certified um, GMO-free, they will be disqualified because we will make the assumption that at this point, the beet crop has been kind of infiltrated. um, And unless they know that it's not uh, containing genetically modified strains... um, they would be disqualified it has happened that we've had this situation and someone has said oh i didn't realize that was happening in beets if i commit right now to changing to cane sugar by the time we're actually announced as a winner um could we still be in the running and we say yes and so it happens every year it's a really nice maybe at least a dozen of the finalists end up making ingredient switches
3: oh wow yeah
2: of a sort of more you know minor ingredient that's not going to change the flavor sure but um we love that, and we actually help them source the better ingredients because um, we've just learned through the month, you know, like oh, this guy's getting beautiful organic nuts from this orchard, right. so we could just tell them where to get them.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I, I think that the the entire awards and the awards process and sort of the surrounding, you know, surrounding groups that kind of exist mm-hmm. um, have, I think, served far more than just identifying what are the best tasting things in the country over the last what coming up on the, the next award is the seventh. Is oh, right? you're so
2: good, yeah.
3: Um so this January will be the seventh uh seventh award ceremony. Yeah. But, you know, it, it really, it allows it allows us as a retailer at the Brooklyn Kitchen to connect with other retailers around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have formed now, through Sarah's sort of guidance and request, a group called the Good Food Retailers Collaborative um, of some of those retailers. And, you know, as retailers, not only do we trade around, oh, if you had such and such cheese, and this is a really great jam, and this is a really great pickle, but we're helping one another with business. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about what are we doing about the rise in minimum wage across the country and how are we addressing issues related to health care and employee sick days and comp time and things things of that nature which it's great to have that support network and i hear from the producers the same the same thing
2: yes um it's a really interesting thing you touched upon because a lot of what we do we present it as one thing but really it's something totally different <laughs> um, so like the blind tasting we presented as like come help choose the winners and yes that is happening but um, on another level it's like the one moment when we're trying to bring together all these people who should know each other um, and who should be working together in various ways that otherwise would never be connecting right Um, so it's like retailers with amazing um, food writers with you know alice waters with um a harvard professor of um, African studies that focuses on cocoa beans right. and, and transparency <laughs> along that food chain. And so many little things get started there.
3: So to take a, a step back in time, um, what prompted you to start this? I mean, I think that, you know, at this point, it's a really, it's a giant organization. I mean, it's not not physically giant. I know there's only like four of you yes. that really <laughs> run it. <laughs> But the reach is very vast, right? I mean, the the reach is is vast, and you're bringing together 200 people to taste, and you're bringing together hundreds of producers and hosting, um, you know, Mm -hmm. business-to-business events in terms of the Good Food Mercantile, where it's a small trade show that is really great for both retailers and producers, where we get to meet one another without having to set foot in these giant, sort of cavernous, faceless trade shows that take place in the Javits Center and the Moscone Center. I won't name the particular trade show, but people in the Food industry. Will know what I'm talking about, um, and you know these things are really great, and you've touched all these people. But how did how did it start?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, well, it was really the confluence of two events, um, and the first one was um, this colossal thing that happened in 2008 called Slow Food Nation. Um, And about 85,000 people came together. Uh, It was the biggest sustainable food event ever, even to this day, to take place in America. Um, It happened outside of City Hall in San Francisco. And also there is a location of it continuing to happen at Fort Mason Center. Um, And my part in that um, big event was really working with the food producers, the same kind of food crafters that... um, I so love and adore are working with now. Um, we created something called the Taste Pavilions, where 16 different categories, you know, olive oil and honey and preserves, each were paired with an architect creating this amazing space that spoke to what they were making um, and led by what we call the curator, so a leader in the field. So for cheese, we had um, Peg and Sue from Cowgirl Creamery. Um, And similar kind of, Steve Sullivan was doing bread from Hackney Breast, similar pioneers. Um, And it was an incredible and beautiful event. We, brought in all kinds of food from all over the country that kind of fit those for people to taste. And at the very end, we had a post-mortem with those curators. And one of the things that came out of it and that stuck in my mind was that they were saying, you know, it was so amazing to have the chance to work with people in different fields that usually the chocolate people weren't talking to the coffee people.
3: Right, right.
2: And, you know, the jam people weren't talking to the olive oil people and they felt that they were learning so much from each other through this kind of um excuse to meet each other yeah um and that they would love to continue some way find a way to kind of continue that cross-pollination
3: and that stuff totally i mean it, it absolutely happens at the you know on on sunday a few days ago in chicago at the, at the mercantile there you know there was a pretzel maker from new york who we know very well, Martin's, and we work mm-hmm. with them. And there was a mustard maker from California who kind of got together and said, well, wait, we should collaborate somehow and dip your pretzels in my mustard and, you know.
2: <laughs> yes. Yes. And I heard at the Mercantile on Sunday that um, this beautiful vinegar maker out in Virginia, um, Landera Farms. Yeah. Daniel. Daniel. Yeah. Um, had met with one of this awesome like peanut oil maker from uh, Georgia. Oh, nice! At the Good Food Awards. Oh, a few in San Francisco. Yeah.
3: yeah, I met the folks from from Georgia. They had driven to yes. San Francisco from Georgia for <laughs> yes. the for the awards with their with their young son. It was really. Their, yes. I think they may have two kids. I don't remember, but yeah.
2: And and he told me he said, "Oh, we're going to make a vinaigrette together." Oh, cool. Um, and it just made me so happy, but um. Yeah, and then the other event that um, was very influential in creating the Good Food Awards was I spent some time in England after Slow Food Nation, and um, I was became friendly with the owner of this beautiful little um, specialty food shop called um, Melrose & Morgan, and um, I was in his shop, and I saw this jar with a little gold sticker that said Great Taste Award winner, and he saw me eyeing it, and he said... Oh, yeah, anything that has that sticker on it flies off the shelf. And it started getting the wheels turning. Um, you know, that particular award didn't have anything to do with sustainability. Hmm. But I thought, like, oh, well, maybe we could use that power
3: right.
2: um, to help mm, create more sales. for. And really- is, that
3: a, is that an English award?
2: Yes. Got it. I think it's organized by The Guardian, perhaps. Hmm. Um, mm, but... That's why we have little stickers for the Good Food Awards. They're blue.
3: Yeah. And and if you come to the Brooklyn (laughs) Kitchen, you will see lots of products that have those stickers on them. Yay. Uh, We're going to take a short break so we can hear from our sponsors here at Heritage Radio Network. And when we come back, we'll keep talking about the Good Food Awards and where where it's going.
1: Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing is a celebration of good food and beverages in the newly restored Barn Loft event venue at Nettle Meadow Farm in Thurman, New York. On Saturday, June 18th, come sample and savor, then buy your favorite cheeses and beverages to take home. Nettle Meadow cheeses have been praised highly in national media and have won prestigious awards from the American Cheese Society. Taste samples of goat and sheep cheeses paired with an array of local regional wines, beers, and ciders. You'll never forget your first sample of rich, creamy Koenig, Nettle Meadows' trademark cheese. In Esquire, our very own Anne Saxelby said, Koenig, it may very well be the sexiest cheese in the USA. Nettle Meadow Farm is a goat and sheep dairy and cheese company in Thurman, New York, just below Crane Mountain in the Adirondacks between Gore Mountain, North Creek, and Warrensburg. It's owned and operated by Lorraine Limbiase and Sheila Flanagan. Both have a great love of animals, artisan cheese, and the unique challenges of farm life. Nettle Meadow Farm was originally founded in 1990, and it's the home of over 300 goats, dozens of sheep, and a variety of farm sanctuary animals. Again, the cheese and spirits pairing is Saturday, June 18th. For more information and tickets, visit That's Nettle Meadow Cheese and That's N E T T L E, Meadow Cheese and com.
3: Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I've been speaking today with Sarah Wiener, co-founder of Seedling Projects, uh, the brains and a lot of the brawn behind the Good Food Awards and the Good Food Merchants Guild and Good Food Mercantile. Um, for those of you that have been, I would encourage anybody who is involved in food, whether you're a chef or a retailer or a distributor, um, if you have not been to the Good Food Mercantile, I definitely, I, I can't recommend it enough. Um, it is been in the last couple of years the most valuable trade show that we have attended um as a retailer i would say um and i that you know i'm not just saying that because i'm sitting in the studio with sarah and she's a friend it, i'm saying it because i hear it from lots of other folks i recently met with a store owner that said that at this point 80 percent or more of the food that they're selling is are items that they found because they came to the good food Market Town. the next one is going to be when sarah
2: june 25th right here in brooklyn
3: and it's a it is an event that really is a it's a business to event um but if you are a super committed consumer i'm sure you could come um but definitely i would you know whether you're a chef or a, a retailer definitely worth worth coming to check out
2: if you know harry he could probably sneak you in <laughs> i'll
3: do it i'll do what i can if you know me um so sarah um just to continue, because the show is really an interview about you. I mean, I know that Seedling Projects is you, and you are Seedling Projects, and those two things sort of overlap completely. Um, but you grew up in St. Louis, right? Indeed. Um, and when you were growing up, was this idea, like, how did food fit in? Was food something mm-hmm. that was talked about? Was food something that just sort of existed as part of your, your childhood What was your relationship to food?
2: So food was always a core motivator for everything I did, which um, befuddled everyone around me, including my family. Um, I remember when I was 16 and going on a backpacking trip to Europe for the first time with my sisters. At one point, they got so exasperated with me. They were like, Sarah, this isn't the food trip of Europe. Like, we're here to see Europe.
3: (laughs) Um, Right, and for you, the lens was... Well, the way you do that is through the food, right? Exactly. I mean, I, I, I yes. wholeheartedly agree that you know that has always been, been my thing. Is that if you see where how people eat, you're going to see the rest of it anyway.
2: Yes, it's like a direct line into like culture and mores and values um, and community, but. It it apparently started way earlier, you know, like I've heard stories that, you know, I'm a a three-year-old and got some big splinter in my foot on vacation, and they brought me to the doctor to have it removed, and they just put a big bowl of jelly beans in front of me, and I didn't cry. I love candy. (laughs) Um, But it, and you know, when, while I was growing up, well, A, it was, St. Louis wasn't the kind of town that had a lot, you know, there were no there might have been a farmers market but we certainly didn't know about it. Um though though Missouri is an agricultural kind of land, you couldn't get tomatoes from Missouri in the grocery store. Uh, it's very much I mean, I believe that Monsanto has a key headquarters there.
3: Still. Oh. All right.
2: Um so right in the heart of the beast. Um and it did took a long time to realize I that and sort of environmentalism actually went hand in hand. Um, I was also one of those, like, Save the Manatee kids. Sure. Um, so that crystallized when my mother, who's a journalist, got sent um, one of the first uh, English language books that Slow Food uh, kind of published here. It was a collected essays. Hmm. Um, I was maybe 18 or 20 and she passed it on to me. um, And that's when I learned about Slow Food. And I just started reading those essays and realizing like, oh my gosh, like, the better, you know, it was to the environment. The better sure. it tastes.
3: Did you Did you bring it to have Carlo Petrini sign it when he spoke <laughs> last year at the Good Food Awards?
2: I should have. Yeah,
3: yeah. Um, For, for Car- Carlo Petrini gave an incredible speech last year at the Good Food Awards. That, in fact, is available on Heritage Radio Network. So, if anybody um, would like to go back and listen to it, um, it really, you know, it was a lot of us who were in the room remarked that he started off by saying that he had three points to make and then he went on in Italian for like six minutes and everybody was like okay I guess that's all three points we're not really sure and then through his translator said okay now's my second point point." and I mean it was just it was a really incredible like what a firebrand he is um, and how how excited and how many interesting things he had to say about food and about you know I think that the the, the world that a lot of us exist in related to food can get and you know given the current uh, I guess, front runner on what I consider the other side of the political spectrum, um, you know, g- will likely in the next coming months and the, the rhetoric that gets discussed around the presidential election, food, I guarantee you, is going to be cast as this, like, classist thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, it, I know that it will, which really bums me out. But mm-hmm. I think that he really describes a lot of the, the reasons why the things that are happening in the good food movement, and certainly there is elitism that gets represented in a lot of other sort of things that are not great, but where we're all sort of trying to go in terms of sustainability really is about helping the human race, this is not, you Mm -hmm. know, it is not about being, you know, cooler than you or having more expensive wine than you.
2: (laughs) No. And isn't it ironic that when you leave this country, like to find the really good food, it's like you go to the people. It's not like in the fancy restaurants, like the food you remember and the experiences you remember. It's
3: It's a great, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, I remember when I was 16, I went to, went to France and spent three weeks living as an exchange student with a family and we would go to the farmer's market And buy and they they knew the farmers. I mean it was Mm -hmm. you know they were friends and we were in Marseille and we'd go to the dock and we'd buy the fish Mm -hmm. from the fishermen and I didn't ever make the full connection until I read Julia Child's biography about like that being such an important thing. Mm -hmm. I mean for me I was like, Oh, this is just how they live in France. Uh Right? And this is cool and you know, whatever. And then she writes about that Mm -hmm. when she first went to France of being part of that. So
2: And Alice Waters writes about you know, too, I think we have a lot to learn from other uh, cultures, food culture still.
3: So speaking of that, um, I mean, where where do you see the future, or do you have a vision for the future of the Good Food Awards and of seedling mm-hmm. projects? You know, you say, so we're, we're adding a, a category a year. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, is that is that infinite? Do we drill down further into preserves and say only berries instead of stone fruit? I mean, you know, how where do you see that going?
2: That's such a good question. Um, You know, we've just this year we'll be reaching the point where we're double the size of categories we were when we began. Wow. Um, So we're beginning to really grapple with a lot of this. Like, can we have the same format? Because we love that everyone comes together on one day and there's 2,000 things to taste. (laughs) But at some point, um, do we divide it up and have like half of the categories tasted on the East Coast at a certain time of year, Uh, half on the West Coast? Sure. I, I do love that we add a category each year to the point where that it makes sense. Like, you know, and to the point that there's, you know, small pro- producers and medium sized producers are just great producers that we can help through it um, and help support those industries. Um, so. is,
3: actually, that brings up a question for me. Um, is there is there a size component? To the producers? I mean, mm. you know, theoretically, if somebody like Smuckers was producing a product that met the criteria, could they enter it?
2: That is a really good question. And it's one we um, dealt with the very first year before we launched. Um, we had the first seven categories, the leads of the first seven categories, the committee chairs come together, and we posed that to them. And they said, you know what, if Starbucks is making coffee that actually meets your criteria around social responsibility, actually meets the transparency criteria, actually meets the growing practices criteria, you know, no pesticides and herbicides and all of that. Um, And in a blind tasting, it's better than all the rest of this stuff, more power to them. Right. They should be recognized. So we don't have a size limit. And our producers that have won good food awards vary in size from like it was their fourth month in business and they've earned ten thousand dollars so far sure. to um six million, eight million dollar companies. Um, mostly it's the breweries and the cheese producers right. on that bit larger side of the spectrum. But also
3: production, I mean, production scale varies incredibly, mm-hmm. right? I mean that, uh, you know, and, and a lot of those companies have grown with the awards, Olympia Provisions being, you know, sort of prime example, or one of the yeah. cheesemakers who make hundreds of thousands of pounds of cheese a year, Jasper mm-hmm. Hill, comes to mind,
2: mm-hmm.
3: compared to someone who has won, like Kelly Geary, who won a number of years ago for her ground cherry chutney that I, I mean, I think she made four cases of that product <laughs> or something. I mean, you know, because it was a very hard product to make, and it, you know, didn't ha- you know? So, you know, or to a, a butcher shop like Stock Provisions, um, mm-hmm. who won for some of their ham or some of their pate, that you know they don't wholesale that product. Mm-hmm. They make one or two loaves a week
0: mm-hmm.
2: to
3: sell in their butcher shop. But here they are, and and it's great being recognized and being at the top of the mm-hmm. country.
2: And I love the way that um, uh, this biodiversity sort of reflects another kind of biodiversity that's so important in food, you know, like slow food talks so much about saving the heritage of breeds and how that makes our human race more robust against things like climate change, um, things like the potato famine.
3: Yeah, I was just reading about that. I'm reading a, a book called 97 Orchard that's about the building where the mm-hmm. Tenement Museum is mm-hmm. Through the and, and it's about the immigrant experience in New York City through the lens of different people that live there and I'm just reading the the Irish one about the potato famine and sort of how it happened. And I didn't, I never knew that actually that the infection of those potatoes came from the new world and it came from, I believe it came from America or Mexico and then got transferred with seed potatoes actually to Mm -hmm. Ireland.
2: I vaguely remember, but this may be wrong, but that that, that, then it was saved by bringing some potatoes from the new world from South America up.
3: Yeah. And they managed to i mean saved, saved not before millions yeah. of people <laughs> were both displaced and died but yeah <laughs> um, pretty pretty intense to think about those things and you know when we I think it 's important that we remember that the that the biodiversity part of it is is incredibly valuable i mean mm-hmm. i I saw an article recently that said we 're kind of on the the last version of what we think of as a banana. Hmm. that we've now had sort of a famine and die off in two different, two other types of bananas that look the way we expect them to be, nine inches long and bright yellow and that sort of thing. And this, the one we're on now, that Dole and Chiquita and everybody pretty much is growing, is kind of the last one. Wow. And that if that has a blight, that's sort of it for bananas looking like that forever. I mean, essentially, (laughs) until we go long enough that, you know, the sort of genetic diversity and change brings us back to it, I guess. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of intense to intense to think about, um, you know, what happens when something like that happens. And then looking at the other side of it of, you know, a product that has been really well, I think, preserved in this country, and, you know, more so in the last 20 years, something like apples, Mm -hmm. where, I mean, apples represent the greatest, in fact, biodiversity of any anything uh, possible. I mean, I, hmm. I don't know if it's anything on earth, but I know that like the apple genome is longer than the human genome. I think it has more diversity. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Somebody told me that recently. I may be saying that wrong. I mean, I I'm not a geneticist, but that apples are more, you know, genetically diverse than <laughs> humans. I think. Hmm.
2: And just as, like, our, you know, natural system in the earth is more robust when we have more diversity, I think, like, our food system, you know, and just everyone having access to great food is more robust if we have different models existing. So some really small, some medium-sized, and maybe a few, like, that have figured out really how to maintain quality and maintain, you know, respect for everyone along the supply chain um, uh, at a larger scale.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're, uh, we're just about out of time. Um, but I want to encourage everyone to look for the good food awards logo. Um, we we will put that up on the show page, um, and look for that sticker on products, ask your retailers, wherever you are. I mean, the, the good food awards products come from almost all 50 States. Mm-hmm. I think at this point uh, products that have won and are definitely distributed in all 50 States. So look for those products, ask about those products. And if you are in the industry, um, or not, you can email me and we'll see what we can do. Um, um, but I would encourage you to check out the next the next good food mercantile um, which is in June in New York um, and then will happen again in in San Francisco um, in June in January as well right at the same time as the awards um, and what where can people find more information on the web
2: Goodfoodawards.org.
3: awesome well thanks Sarah I really appreciate it if anything is there anything else that you want to mention that you're working on or that seedling is working on people should know about
2: just delighted to be here thanks for having me harry
3: yeah thanks so much for uh, for coming in thanks for listening today to feast your ears a big thank you to Kristen baylor who's my producer here and david tatashore for engineering you can find feast your ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on itunes and you can follow me on social media at the Foodballer.